With the news media covering increasingly more news about data breaches and security and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor, we are here to help you mitigate potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello, and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to the 72nd episode of my show. I do this show to help raise awareness of information security and privacy risks and issues. And I also do it to provide worldwide listeners with some practical tips and actions to help improve information security and to better protect privacy. Please subscribe to my show on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, or whatever your favorite podcast or news app is. And also, please subscribe to my show on the Voice America Business Channel website. Then you'll be notified just as soon as each new show is available. Thank you to all my now 110,000 plus listeners throughout the world. I truly do appreciate you and thank you for tuning in. My February Privacy Professor Tips message was published at the end of January. Please sign up for them. I've provided them free since 2007 and I've been doing this in an effort to increase general awareness of information security and privacy issues, and also to provide a free awareness publication for organizations to use to send to their employees. You can sign up for them by going to privacyguidance.com and submitting your email in the box in the upper right part of your screen. Now, here's my quick tip for the month. On January 14th, Microsoft released a set of patches for the Windows platform, and it included a patch for CVE 2020-0601, which is a serious vulnerability. If you've not patched your Windows system yet, do it soon, okay? So now on to our topic for today. So here's something that uh, some of my listeners may not know about me, but I enjoy science fiction, particularly Philip K. Dick stories. Do androids dream of electric sheep? In particular is a story that I like. It was published in 1968, and there was a movie based on this book called Blade Runner. I think some of you might have heard of it. It was originally released in 1982. And I'm going to be super oversimplistic, but generally it was about a very human-like set of robots that self-evolved and developed reasoning, emotional, and other human-like independent capabilities. Again, that's very oversimplistic. But that was science fiction. But you know, oftentimes life imitates art, 
And humans have long wondered about this possibility of robots becoming independent thinkers. You know, fiction from throughout the past 200 years actually have included stories of robots and man-made beings. In 1950, Alan Turing posed the question, can machines think? Or in other words, can we make machines that think? Well, engineers have since considered the possibilities of neuromorphic engineering, also sometimes called neuromorphic computing. And again, very simplistically, this is a concept of building electric circuits to mimic neurobiological parts of the human nervous system, particularly to mimic the human brain and how it works. I remember starting around 2005 or so, some of the folks in the tech industry, some of my colleagues started urging the development of ethical standards that we should or that they believed the industry should follow to build robots to keep them from going berserk, I guess, and becoming lethal weapons, kind of like in the 1984 movie, The Terminator, which, by the way, I think is very much like a Philip K. Dick story. Uh, But in that movie, if there are a few of you out there who haven't heard of it, it's basically about a time-traveling cyborg that did a lot of reasoning on his own volition. I've always also found that the 1987 animated movie, The Brave Little Toaster, was one of the best movies about IoT robots independently planning and acting on their own. I've watched it many times, and every time I think of the different ways that we could actually do some of those things today. So today, I am super excited to discuss artificial intelligence, what would make these robots thinking on their own and doing things without having to be explicitly told to do so at that point in time where you want them to do them. Artificial intelligence, uh, I'm really excited to talk about AI and the associated information security and privacy and other risks that AI brings with it uh, with an AI expert who also happens to be a fellow IANS, I-A-N-S, research faculty member. Davi Ottenheimer is security architect at Inrupt. Davi is also founder and president of Flying Penguin, an information security consulting firm that focuses on risk mitigation and incident response solutions. Davi serves as a visiting lecturer at St. Polten University of Applied Sciences in Austria. Davi is also an affiliate for the Policy Innovation Lab of Tomorrow or Pilot at Penn State University. You can see more about Davi on my Voice America show site. Davi, thank you so much for being my guest today. Welcome to my show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, it certainly is a current topic that we're going to discuss today, and uh, I thought it might be good to level set for our very diverse group of listeners. Uh, 
can you tell us in as simple, I guess, and succinct of a description as possible, what we actually mean by artificial intelligence or AI? Oh, it's a controversial topic. And there are so many definitions. Mm-hmm. People debate about it. And I think the latest I've seen is people say, does it even matter? Should we be too... Uh, semantic about what we're talking about when we say learning versus intelligence. But fundamentally, the definition that's probably most useful is uh, a rational non-human, so a machine-like entity that has some ability to reason and make rational choice. It's not necessarily a copy or an imitation of a human in the sense of a Turing test or even a instruction set, which is more like computers we know, but it's actually that you can give it an objective and have it figure out on its own what to do. Yes. Well, I think that's a very good, succinct way to describe it. You know, I watched your B-Sides Las Vegas uh, talk uh, on artificial intelligence that you did in 2019, and I urge my listeners, you can do a search for it and watch it. I found it very intriguing. But uh, you mentioned that AI is the civil rights battle of our day. So, in what ways do you see AI as the civil rights battle of our day? Well, there's two things there. The, f- the first is that I didn't come up with that uh, theory, actually. I, I tried to spread the, the gospel, if you will, the word that I heard. And I actually picked that up from a, a number of communities that were working on AI ethics that already exist. And in particular, there's a, a, lo- a lot of black women who are working in this field, and they were talking about it extensively. And I've noticed, I've actually put on my blog, Uh, lists of people who are in this field who are uh, female, who are of a minority. And so they were talking about it in very real terms. And I think it takes someone like from a community that has seen a civil rights battle to understand what it is. So there's definitely a a background there to people who can identify it. And then the second part to that is, you know, my background, I have studied that. I have done quite a bit of work looking into ethics and uh, rights. And so it was very apparent to me that in any technology, there's a, a power transfer. And in any technology that really does a, a major shift or transformation where you have sort of an asymmetric effect, then people who are disadvantaged become even more disadvantaged because the power gravitates to those who get the new weapon, if you will. And so should AI be used to uh, by the people who are already in power to further oppress those that are around them, then it absolutely represents a civil rights battle forming uh, that people need to be aware of. And we've already seen that in Brazil, for example. We saw, you know, an asymmetric use of systems to flip-flop the the power structure. People who were in power thought they might have had a better chance, but then there's, whether it be use of AI or non-use of AI, there's uh, a definite political science dynamic to it. And and the rights of people factor straight into that. And the one I hear about most is the right to privacy. Well, and, you know, I completely agree with you. And I think a a danger that I've seen from so many people who don't come from a tech background, they assume that the algorithms that were written to do AI are um, perfect, you know, or they're accurate. And they don't realize that humans create those algorithms. And so the biases uh, and other tendencies or maybe viewpoints of those creating those algorithms can be incorporated into how the AI works uh, as it 
becomes applied. And that kind of is a very big danger, too, to have the general public just assuming that AI is working in a way that's fair to all. Absolutely. I think it's fair to say that a lot of the machines are made in our own image. And it's hard for a lot of people to understand that they themselves carry a bias. So it, it really is shocking sometimes when you say, okay, in the 1930s, Kodak decided not to develop the, the, the non-white face. So when you take a photo, the way that they used processing was to show contrast and brightness and so forth for people's faces in film who weren't... Uh, or who were white, so if they're non-white, they weren't seen at all. And then you fast forward to Google, and it's doing tests to do image recognition. And the same exact thing happens, even though it was well-documented from the 1930s onward in the film, you know, the, the classic uh, developed film industry. So you, you see if people had known that and read the history and saw that this was a problem before, they would have immediately gone into AI thinking, well, if I'm going to do image processing on Google, I should first thing I should do is make sure they don't make these mistakes from the past. But they actually did the mm-hmm. opposite. And so you found, you know, it actually started with a, a black couple taking a photo of themselves and they were classified incorrectly. And the, the shocking part of this is like everybody was classified incorrectly at first, but mm-hmm. the white staff at Google went about making sure that they were classified correctly and they didn't bring in anyone who didn't look like them to test against. And so you have to go back to, is it working on the same implicit bias that you have in your life? What's the value system that you work under when you go about creating the machine in your own image. Yes. And, you know, it, it seems like it, it accumulates uh, in ways that people don't notice, right? There's so many small changes where AI is slowly being incorporated in ways that perhaps we don't realize. Um, like you're talking about, people probably didn't realize uh, about uh, Google and how they came up with those determinations and maybe the flaws involved with them. And we have big data analytics and, you know, a lot of small changes that people might not understand is going on in the background uh, with smart devices and, and just the way that our world is changing as we become more dependent on tech. So how are these accumulative, uh, cumulative, small changes to society, you know, how do you see them changing the world when it comes to the incorporation of the use of AI, you know, for the good, but also maybe in damaging ways? Yeah, this is classic philosophy. And I really encourage more and more people who are in computer science to make sure they have a foundation in history and philosophy and political science, anthropology, sociology. I mean, these things really sort of open your mind to the concept of the balance of the imperfect balance of knowledge versus privacy. So as you lose privacy, you gain knowledge. So if somebody came to you and said, I can cure cancer, if I have the knowledge, would you give up your privacy? And that varies by culture too. So every country you go to in the world is going to have a different answer for why they would give up their privacy. And so when you scale back you know, a little bit and you look at why are we creating these machines, intelligent machines, it's to accumulate knowledge. And so then that becomes the question, okay, I want knowledge. I want to, so this moral end, if you will, whatever you've decided you're going to use the machine for, who signs off on that? Who says that's a moral aim other than you? Is there some inherited right that some group decides that's the right thing to do, the objective? And then are you approaching it on a small scale or a large scale? And what's the impact? And so one of the reasons I pull you know, Philip Dick into the conversation or I even look at Blade Runner is because he was asking fundamental questions that people are uncomfortable with, like, are you a human or aren't you? Mm-hmm. So... That's actually a very troubling question because you see across history, there's 
often genocide based on the principle of turning dehumanizing others. And so if you have a machine that decides who is human and who isn't, who goes to jail and who doesn't, who stays in jail and doesn't get out, you know, these are where very small decisions turn into big decisions. Um, I actually worked in a, a country, I went to work with a government that was having trouble because they couldn't give money. It was actually preventing their economy from expanding because the algorithms that were being used were assessing everyone as high risk because they were tracking so much information from like childhood. You open a lemonade stand, you didn't sell any lemonade. Well, that goes in your record. And so 30 years later, you're like, I need a loan to start a business. And they say, well, what about that lemonade stand when you were seven years old? Mm. That didn't go anywhere. So that kind of knowledge, that loss of privacy is really a, a question of power. Oh, yeah. Well, and not only that, but kind of coming back to your point about privacy and, you know, what is who decides what's ethical to take personal data uh, to do certain things like to improve health and so on. Kind of related to that, then who makes the decision where, well, we already have this personal data and it was collected for this one purpose to maybe do research into solving cancer, but you know, we've already got it. Why don't we use it for these other things beyond that purpose? It should be okay for that then too, right? So it seems like there's a lot of problems going on with that type of secondary data use after it was initially collected. And it seems like AI does, you know, gets involved with that a lot and in growing growing numbers of ways uh, yes. today. Yeah, I'm working on that. I'm working on that very specifically now with Inrupt and the, the solid specification that Sir Tim Berners-Lee has been working on. This. The idea is that you get this over-consolidation of data. And so the burst of AI in the last generation, there's been really three huge bursts of AI innovation or development, if you will, excitement, if nothing else. And the latest one came from a mass collection of data and over-sharing um, without consent. And so... A lot of researchers want to get into the data to find out if they can help you, but they don't necessarily get your consent because they got the data set from somewhere that came from somewhere that came from somewhere that came from somewhere. And so the way to change that is to break this whole centralization away and to give the rotate the control back to individuals where you can say, I would consent to that because I believe what you're working on makes sense or I would like to volunteer my information. But if you over-centralize in the way that you see Facebook classically does with no concern at all, uh, for the people who are involved in these studies, uh, extremely selfish to, to a ridiculous degree, then it's very difficult to, it's just very difficult for the individual to say they have control over their own destiny. You, I've used this in several presentations now where I, you ultimately become a body of data. So you have a corpus, mm-hmm. your body, physical body, where you have to agree or consent to the use of your body in a physical sense. And then you have a body of data. And that body of data isn't really being given the consent that you would as a physical person. So your body of data actually gets, in a, in a sense, prostituted out or gets used promiscuously without your consent. And so these companies are profiting from use of your body and you have no way of saying no. And so that's very much like pimping. And we typically say, you know, extortion of people or the enslavement of people, that's all very illegal. It's a, people classically fight that all over the world. But then when it comes to the body of data and the same sort of effects on the human condition, suddenly it's okay for Facebook to be this uh, basically pimp that takes care of you know, itself, gets all this money, but everyone else loses. Yeah, it's kind of ironic, isn't it, that humans are creating AI 
But at the same time, the AI is uh, changing humans over to be collections of data. (laughs) So we've almost come full circle there. So for some of our listeners, I guess I think it would be helpful to maybe consider a real life um, example of perhaps how AI might be used to the good. Because, you know, we talked about and you went over some of the ways in which it can be harmful or there's overreach. But, uh, you know, for for a little bit of balance, you know, how can AI uh, be used for the good, such as like with the space shuttle Challenger? You you gave that as an example in your B-Sides uh, talk, and I thought it was very good where uh, you were talking about the, the space shuttle Challenger in 1986. You know, it exploded 73 seconds after liftoff, killing all of the the crew members, and it was because of a faulty O-ring. So do you think that AI could have been used to help uh, prevent that type of tragedy or perhaps future tragedies uh, similar to that? Yeah, that is a very good example because what it's basically saying in the disaster scenario, the there's a ton of research done into it. Ariane 5 disaster is another one. But in space, when there's a disaster like aerospace of any kind of planes, there's a ton of research done. And it takes time for the researchers to put together their answers. And that's a knowledge pursuit. And so when you have absolutely unfettered access to all of this data, as they tend to in space, looking at the stars or looking at machines, that, that data isn't you know, personal data. That's science data that's you know, based on physics of the world and the place we live. So it's... It's actually easy to say that they could have known, to boil it down, they could have known that the O-ring would behave differently in colder temperatures. But that was a thing that no one was uh, able to visualize, I think, famously. They weren't able to explain why they shouldn't launch the shuttle, and they decided to launch it, even though there were warnings not to, because there was no one who could say, this is why we think there will be a risk. They were basically going into uncharted territory by launching in colder temperatures than ever before, and the O-ring behaved differently in leaked fuel because... The properties of the cold, I mean, the properties that they were used to make the O-rings and the cold temperatures created a a dangerous situation. AI would be perfect for that because it would say, you know, based on this chart, there's a high high likelihood of failure in this range of cold, which is hard for humans to express. And so AI would save time and move faster. It would definitely be useful in that scenario. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, I think it's, it's, it's most useful when you think of it as an augmentation. And if you think mm-hmm. of the car in particular as an augmentation, it's an automated technology. And so you put somebody in a car, it's a box. But think of it less of like a box and actually like an extension of the body. So you strap it on your legs and you could run 100 miles an hour. Uh, people would really go for that because it's really enhancing their lives. So AI can be very, very useful in figuring out how the body moves and anticipating how you'd want to run and making you faster, getting you places faster. So lots of upside, but it has to be seen as an augmentation of an intelligent human, as opposed to something which is meant to find knowledge on its own and to be trusted, like to trust it where to take you because it would know what you want better than you is that's where we get into trouble. Right. Right. Well, definitely. Um, How do you see the ways in which AI controlled types of robots. Uh, do you see a power shift in our society from the way they are currently being used? Uh, and what types of power would be involved? Sorry, I missed part of that. Could you repeat the question? Um, sure. So, you know, with regard to the way 
AI-controlled robots, the increasing numbers of them are now used in our society. How do you see that them shifting power? How do you see them shifting power in our society? Or do you maybe not see them shifting power in our society? Yeah, you definitely see them shifting power because you're looking at an augmentation of people in a way that they know they no longer have limits put on them. And so if you have an imbalance of power, then they can leap past what regulations might have held them back. All right, so the, the question really becomes then, how do you make better regulation? But, but first, I like to think of it in terms of you know, CVEs, the common vulnerabilities, where people might have a severe one, or 7, 8, 9, 10, that they're really worried about because it leads to system compromise. And they often don't look at the lower level ones, which in a combinatorial effect can be just as bad. So three fours can be used together in order to get to total system compromise. And you see the same thing happening in the AI space, where um, intelligence today is augmentation or automation. And so in times past, you'd have the repeating rifle, you would have the barbed wire, and you would have the train. And when I ask people to put those together, I say, you know, the rifle itself, westward expansion, used for outcomes of battles, very decisive, but not by itself the worst thing. Uh, Barbed wire, very decisive in penning in or changing the dynamics of walls, no longer stone walls, no longer earthen walls, but barbed wire, very inexpensive to define where your territory was, new territory. And then the trains or cars, piston engines moving people about much faster, really changed a lot of dynamics and power structures, but by itself wasn't the worst thing. But you put the three together and you get genocide, because that's basically the definition of a concentration camp. It, Mm. It completely shifts power in a way that you can suddenly give a few people with weapons the ability to take over large masses of people very inexpensively. And so I'd see the same thing happening you know, when we talk about driverless cars. I ask, you know, what combination of things, or when we talk about Facebook, what combination of things are they doing to prevent genocide? Uh, well, I think that's a, a very enlightening and great example. So let's stop right here for a moment because right now it's time for a quick break to hear from our sponsors. So today I'm speaking with Davi Ottenheimer about artificial intelligence and the related risks and benefits uh, and how to balance them and security and privacy as well. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the Privacy Professor. You can contact me with questions and comments about this show as well as show topic suggestions using my email, RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com and also through my PrivacyGuidance.com website. Please stay with us. We'll be right back after these important messages from my sponsors. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy, and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyprofessor.org. Rebecca Harold and Associates offers information security products, privacy, and compliance tools, education, and consulting. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages. She has published since 2007. Visit privacyprofessor.org for help and answers to your questions. It's time to take charge of your own career path. But how do you get started? First, tune in to The Career Confidant with Marie Zimanoff. 
Each show will feature national business leaders, tips and insight from Marie and her guests, career management tools, and a weekly career smart tip. She'll help you move forward, earn that promotion, get hired into the career you want, and brand yourself. The Career Confidant is broadcast live every Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. That's Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. Welcome back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on the Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, and today I'm speaking with Davi Ottenheimer about artificial intelligence. So now I want to kind of get into the impacts more specifically to information security, privacy, and safety. So Davi, what kind of boundaries do you see that are needed with uh, the creation and use of artificial intelligence to really support strengthening information security and protecting privacy? Well, I'll be giving a talk about this at RSA, actually. I've, I've developed over, I've been working on this for at least seven or eight years. Mm-hmm. And lately, I've developed some very specific things that I think we have to move towards. Early on, I was giving sort of frameworks, but now I'm ready to make recommendations on specific technologies that have to be built and specific uh, implementations of those technologies within a regulatory framework. So, for example, there needs to be a reset button. So, AI, as a knowledge tool, has the ability to, to change what we think we know. And if you don't have the ability to reset information, information integrity in classic uh, security terms, if you have no way of controlling the integrity because someone has taken that power away from you, it changes the knowledge because the data has been spoiled. Mm-hmm. So a reset is a fundamental technology development that we're going to have to focus on. So when we know, for example, in Brazil, 8% only 8% of information transferred on WhatsApp was accurate in terms of political information. So that's 92% of information being transferred on the Facebook platform was lies. And they refused to address this. But you have to have a way to change that back so that you can't have the augmentation of non-truths. No, no respect for the concept of science or of avoiding harms uh, mm-hmm. from information. So that's reset. Uh, power off is the second one. You have to be able to disconnect the relationship and reclaim ownership of data away from a machine, if you will, that you don't want to know about you. This is common in stalking terms where you, in human terms with a stalker, you, the person keeps trying to gather information about you and you put a restraining order or your relationships are ended and you say you no longer have rights to access my body or physically or my data. And so you hold people at bay and that's, that's a power off. So for machines to be powered off, you know, or even to want to be powered off or to allow themselves to be powered off. And it doesn't have to be at the corpus. It, you know, it doesn't have to be centralized. It can be individual uh, tendrils. So they may have mm-hmm. a relationship with you and you would just cut those off. 
and they would just go on to other people. So those are two very, very specific technology-based regulatory-backed controls that we can put into place uh, if we change the way that we address these augmentation systems, then if we think of them as real solutions, then we can make them safer immediately. Boy, and you know, that makes sense. And it seems very logical. But what I've seen over the years is kind of a, a huge challenge to overcome with having logical boundaries uh, put into place and actually regulated as lawmakers oftentimes are not folks who um, really understand technology or how it works or maybe the impacts positive and negative. Uh, so just like on a different topic, but it's, uh, you know, kind of the similar concept with uh, encryption and backdoors. That's a, another issue that worries me tremendously. But uh, how 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 likely do you see our current uh, way of creating laws and standards supporting these types of logical boundaries? It's going to depend on market. And so that's sort mm-hmm. of the, it's a good and a bad thing. In, in the world, we have a lot of different opinions or relativist opinions about what would be a good way to regulate. So I find that there are certain pockets around the world. I believe the last count, there's 80 or 90 different approaches to regulate that are underway right now. And that's good. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm seeing, you know, GDPR is a big push because the right to deletion, for example, is an expression of that power off. Delete me from your centralized data store. You can no longer do analysis of me using your AI, right? Your knowledge engines that are going to make decisions about my future are going to lose that access, that ability. Uh, So if we follow that kind of regulatory pattern, we're seeing Washington State, California, and then others, Singapore, you know, really pushing uh, the boundaries on this. Germany, the EU, they're really making strides. Um, Mm -hmm. Even India was doing some of this. So I definitely see a lot of those relativist views. But I think what really matters in classic philosophical terms, is if there's an inherited right, not just a controlled right, a controlled right being something you decide is right or wrong, but if you inherit a right, such as a human right, from Mm -hmm. something that's inherent to everybody, then that's where we're really going to make the most progress. And I don't want to put pressure on the United Nations as a body, but there's going to be some way of international agreement, the EU as an expression of a union of states, the United States, a federal government as an expression of union that's where I think we're going to make the most progress at these federal level or global level. So, Right. Well, do you see any states uh, starting to take action? And, you know, maybe this isn't something that, uh, that you've researched or looked into, but a lot of states, you know, they're the first ones oftentimes to take action with privacy laws uh, that, then spread quickly to other states and so on. Do you see any of the states or maybe specific countries taking action to put something like that in place? Yeah. I mean, Germany said very clearly they were going to move on an extremely aggressive timeline. Mm-hmm. And I think what's interesting is sometimes the vagueness of the regulation can mm-hmm. mean that multiple people see the same thing and they think it's something different. So mm-hmm. when we saw the United States move towards AI regulation, it was so high level and vague. And I would argue almost impossible to implement. Some people said it was going to express a desire to let the industry regulate itself. Other people said it was a harsh regulation of the industry. But Germany, I think, has been moving very quickly towards something that's much more clear-cut. Well, it spells out specific things. And I've seen uh, Sweden, actually, has an extremely aggressive approach. Uh, 
bringing a lot of people, funding a lot of people to really get to very tactical, very easy um, aims. So again, I think being strategic is good, and I think having the high-level vision is good. But regulation really forces innovation. You you simply mm-hmm. will not get the innovation we need if we don't regulate this industry. And I think that's counterintuitive for people who are non-technical. But mm-hmm. having built encryption solutions and privacy solutions for the better part of 25 years, I can tell you most of the things that were the most innovative that got funded would never have happened if we hadn't had a law that forced us to do it. Mm, right, right. Well, you know, as you're talking about this, I'm thinking, because I, I've started out as a systems engineer and did that for many years before moving into to more uh, specific security and privacy activities. So I know that if you have someone who's got maybe a deviant mind or malicious intent, they can oftentimes meet the requirements of a regulation but still do it in a way that brings in that bias or that brings in, you know, some other type of outcome that uh, that they have programmed to kind of go their way, if you will. So how do you control the people, even if you, you meet the requirements of what you're talking about, these boundaries, do you think we need some sort of certifications for people who will be programming AI to make sure that, that they, um, you know, don't have these biases and unethical um, outcomes built into them? Uh, That's a fantastic question because, yes, I think certifications sometimes get watered down. I think sometimes Mm -hmm. they're not fair, but I see those as opportunities to make them better. And uh, in particular, I see engineers who have a code of ethics in Mm -hmm. chemistry chemical engineering or mechanical engineering or all these different disciplines where you expect them to not do harm to society. And we lack that in our Mm -hmm. uh, discipline. You know, computer scientists uh, not only are confused or or unsure if they can sign a code of ethics, some studies said up to 50% of cryptographers refuse to sign a code of ethics. So we see that in our discipline. Yeah, that's yeah, I write about this on my, my website sometimes or my blog, Flying Penguin, and I definitely have many decks that I explain this. And I teach, of course, computer science graduate students where I, I show this to them and I say, would you sign a code of ethics if I said it was this, that you're not going to do harm to society in your engineering practices? And every wow. time I teach, there's always one person who says, I don't see why I have to do that. Why can't I just make as much money as I want? And if people do things with what I'm making that's bad, why isn't it their fault? Why isn't always the victim's fault? I don't understand why I have any responsibility to anyone else. So, yeah, I think certification is a good way to at least identify those people who think like that to limit what they're making. Because once you know, again, knowledge being such a powerful thing in Mm -hmm. society, once you know somebody thinks like that, you don't give them the things that would kill the most people because they would just always say, I'm not accountable, no matter what, no matter how bad it got, they would say, I just don't have any accountability. And that's that's the type of person who's a danger to society. It's sort of a mm-hmm. sociopathic approach to somebody who murders others to take their goods and says, I don't see why that's bad. So we, we absolutely need some certification to sort of keep ourselves honest, at least informed about risks, uh, if not preventing, at least detecting. And then I think it comes, you know, again, with the AI being mm-hmm. able to be a rational agent, like these humans who can't be rational under normal circumstances, machines, mm-hmm. of course, would do the same thing. I've just seen studies recently that said you can never expect a machine to target and kill the right person. So in mm. the heat of battle, people are talking about, can we have machines that are used in 
modern conflict or warfare. Drones, for example, if you want to use the example of drones carrying mm-hmm. explosives, would they target the right people? Which is essentially like what a missile does. A Hellfire missile is somewhat intelligent. So they say you can't expect that to be autonomous, which means there has to be a check and balance, mm-hmm. whether it be somebody who's sitting and driving it all the time and monitoring it or authorizing it, making decisions for it, or at least reviewing the decisions it made. Yeah. Well, that's what worries me about uh, the use and implementation of like facial recognition and taking actions based upon that, because, you know, it kind of comes back to the core of how do you know your AI algorithms were were built for that facial recognition recognition to actually work accurately or it might have bias. So like you said, when you're when you're using a drone to perhaps kill people who are bad people legitimately, but yet the AI was built in such a way that it's it's going to go way outside the boundaries of what's accurate and can have some very uh, bad outcomes. Um, yeah, it's it's very worrying to think that we're we're forging ahead with implementing all these different AI devices that take autonomous uh, action, and we don't even know if the AI is even accurate. So, um, well, well, it's less about accuracy. I mean, this is mm-hmm. a great example, I think, of where people need to keep in mind that it's knowledge versus privacy, and I think the mm-hmm. issue isn't. Whether it's accurate, that is an issue, don't get me wrong. There's an ac- accuracy is definitely an issue, but that's not the issue. I think we over focus on things like authenticity and accuracy when the real issue is harm. And so the mm-hmm. question is who gets the knowledge and what do they do with the knowledge? And that's, that's the hard problem because if you allow facial recognition, you shift very quickly, you shift who has power. Mm-hmm. And then you don't really have a way of knowing who has that power and what they're going to do with it. And so you lose control essentially. It becomes it becomes a, a feeder into asymmetric warfare very, very quickly, where power is completely uh, unbalanced and no one knows who's going to break out and whether you, they want those people to have that kind of power. So you can have a very small group of very elite uh, folks who are basically holding control over everyone because they're the ones who are using the technology in that way. And it takes a huge expense of everyone else to sort of stop what they're doing. All economies have to sort of grind to a halt while they go to battle to try to get those people to give up that ridiculous use of technology. That the, you know, that's classic fascism, where you have well, to get rid of the fascists to go back to a normal state. Yeah, yeah. Well, and talking about that and, and getting back to a normal state, when you look at how AI is being used online, uh, what are you seeing uh, AI being used online for that might be biased or used in ways that is more detrimental than it is, um, you know, beneficial? Well, there's, there's so many examples of bias. And I think, again, I like to try, try to draw it from history. And I say, well, if we've been biased in the past, then, of course, we're biased right now online. So we saw Amazon, for example. They had a good response, actually. But they were shown that their Amazon Prime service was extremely racist. It was only delivering Prime to white neighborhoods. And when they were confronted with that, they said, oh, we have no idea why. It's easy to explain why. The data would actually turn it that way because the United States has a history of racist uh, red zoning and so forth. So they were just picking that up in their Prime analysis. So they decided to deliver to all neighborhoods, no bias. That was their response, which isn't an adequate response to get rid of the bias. Uh, but others don't get rid of the bias, and I've, I've seen that as well. So you see, for example, you have lots of speech, and you have lots of um, – there's a lack of uh, a filtering, if you will. And so the machines sort of are used to pick up who should see what. And that's really scary when suddenly you're – 
pushed out, again, going back to Blade Runner, you're deemed to be non-human because of the machines that are judging you. Mm -hmm. Uh, Fundamentally, you become uh, pushed out of access. You become isolated. You you have doors closed because of what's happening online. The, The things you've said, the analysis of your mental state, your behavior, your appearance, your past. So all of that knowledge collection and incorrect analysis based on past uh, bias is really what's so dangerous. Because in the past there was discrimination, because in the past there was racism, then why not perpetuate that? One of the best examples of this is how driverless cars, I believe, will kill more people than ever before. Because the history of safety on the roads, if you really read about it, puts Mm -hmm. cars in a position where they should run over people. And unless you understand the true history of transit, you're going to go around saying, why wouldn't this make the roads safer? Because the cars will see a person and make sure they don't hit them. But that's not at all what history tells us. It tells us that cars were used to run over people for very specific reasons, usually power and politics. And so I would expect driverless cars, uh, whether you call that online or not, whether you call it connected or not, uh, yeah. to be used. Yeah, I would definitely call that uh, an example of where I expect there to be far more and many, many worse crimes committed. Driverless cars are really a, a credible threat to humanity. Well, we've already seen so many examples, right, of where hackers were able to get into driverless cars and actually take control of them or change, you know, their actions, uh, accelerate them, hit the brakes. But then even right. in real life with that, um, how many driverless Uber cars were there before we actually had a death that occurred because of a driverless Uber car, someone getting, I mean, the percentage, yeah, go ahead. It's, it's very easily predicted. And a lot of my talks are before the death talking about how it would be death. But I think what we're, the transition I see a lot of security teams struggling to make is that you can get into the car and you can modify the car. You can hack the car in the traditional sense. That means you can control the car. But when you think about the machine itself being rational, The future risk is that you can get into the car and change its decision criteria so it doesn't see people as human or sees them as something to exterminate, specifically as a threat. So instead of seeing, you know, a cardboard box and stopping the car, which is Mm -hmm. one of the things we used to do, we'd throw a box out and the car can't tell if it's an empty box or a full box. So in order to be more intelligent, you would program it to make sure it runs over boxes no matter what's inside of them. And then you'd program it to run over particular humans, a particular race of humans, a particular type of human, a particular person. When you put 40,000 Ubers into downtown San Francisco, when there was only 7,000 taxis before, and then you have an algorithm that controls where they go and what they can do, then it's just a matter of some adversary setting the algorithm to move over 10 or 15 feet, drive on sidewalks for 15 minutes, and kill as many people as possible. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Well, so let's turn to the folks who are building the AI now. So we have a lot of people who are listeners of this show who are actually in high school and college, in addition to just the general public and IT folks as well who are practitioners. But a lot of them are very interested in going into artificial intelligence and and building those types of devices. So, you know, what, what would you tell them to do if they wanted to really be beneficial and create what is good AI to kind of undo maybe the bad AI that's already out there? Or is there anything they can do? 
Yeah, absolutely. And so I think this comes back to sort of the moral frameworks and the relativism versus the uh, inherent or absolutes. You know, I think of time, for example, there's a time clock that goes, time is always moving forward, but then there's a time zone you may live in. So I think what people should identify first is whether they live in a time zone and how that relates to time. Where's your inherited right come from? Where did the val- where's the value system come from? And are there flaws in your value system when you keep going up the stack to ultimately do you have an ethical model? That's the first thing. And that's the code of ethics. So in classic business terms, if you took a job, you would say, you know, what's good for me? what's good for the team I'm on, and then really what's good for the mission of this company or the organization I'm working for. And so in that context, if you make AI a knowledge-based pursuit that enhances your success, your team's success, or the mission of your organization's success, then you're talking about doing things for good. Now, a lot of companies do bad things, Enron, Facebook, you know, and the executives of those companies sometimes get held accountable. So you don't necessarily want to be doing AI inside an organization where you discover late that they have an unethical or immoral stance on human rights. But if you can figure out the human rights aspect and then align your pursuit of knowledge with those moral codes, then you'd be moving the world towards good. Curing cancer, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, And you would think about if privacy is a human right, there's only so much you can do to research cancer before you violate someone's privacy in a way that that can't be restored. Back to my, you know, two key, key principles. I actually have four or five principles, but the two ones I want people to remember right now are the reset button and the power button. So mm-hmm. if you take if you take those moral principles, you'll say, how can I make sure while I'm in pursuit of a good that I don't violate someone in a way they can't be put back to whole? Well, doesn't also just the testing of your AI as you're developing it and seeing if it works uh, in a way that you believe is ethical, don't we also need to maybe change our view of how to test uh, our programs to ensure they're correct? Because like you were saying before, some of these AI programs, it seemed like they only tested it on a very narrow set of data that met the criteria of, you know, a very specific type of human, maybe a, of a certain race and gender, uh, height and size and so on. Can It, it seems like even expanding our view of what we need to do to test AI needs to be much different than for traditional, you know, back office types of applications. I'm glad you brought that up. That's actually a very, very good point. And so there's some leading researchers in this space right now that are in uh, England and Oxford and in Germany and Frankfurt. And there's lots of research about auditability and Mm -hmm. transparency of AI, which is basically saying, how did you reach your conclusion? You turn in a math solution to a teacher, they say, show me your work. And Mm -hmm. so a lot of the principles of AI in the past have been that there's a hidden layer, there's something they can't explain. It's the same way you might say, I don't know how my brain works to a math professor. The math professor can say, I don't need to know how your brain works. I just need to show, you need to show me your work. So I have some transparency about how you arrived at these conclusions. And so I think the the problem with the transparency and auditability uh, angle on AI is they're still developing what that means or how you'd hold somebody to account. But I can tell you two of the philosophers I think have the answers, mm-hmm. uh, probably the best philosopher in history who was definitely underrecognized was Mary Wollstonecraft, who I talk about in my presentation. Mary Wollstonecraft had fantastic ideas about how if you have somebody who doesn't seem to be educated enough, you know, somebody, mm-hmm. r- rather the other inverse, somebody who doesn't seem smart or doesn't seem intelligent, if you educate them in a particular way, they become intelligent and they do things in a rational way, like raising a child. But in her context, she was saying 
uh, end slavery, and this is in the 1770s, I believe, 1780s. So she mm-hmm. said you should end slavery and women have equal intelligence to men. And she said you can do this by following these principles of educating them and testing them. So I think she has very good guidance and we should follow that. And I think that would open a lot of doors for progress in AI if we start to think like philosophers, you know, particularly mm-hmm. Mary Wollstonecraft. Uh, David Hume is the other one. I think he was a fantastic philosopher who said, look, we take a lot of shortcuts. And shortcuts are fine when you have some moral code guiding you towards, I've gotten to a 90% certainty, so I'm going to just forego the 10% because it's so expensive, and that would be a waste of resources, and I'm going to move forward. And that's reasonable. We use that all the time in banking, for example, today. So mm-hmm. a lot of AI, are, you know, they're cheating at the 8%, like in Brazil. They, they use 92% lies or cheats. And I break AI all the time. As a tester, mm-hmm. when I am given an algorithm, I basically try to figure out how they cheated because I know that they're trying to put things to market as quickly as possible. So when mm-hmm. they say facial recognition, I find out they're only looking at four points on the face. And if I can change those four points, my face disappears or I can change it to look like someone else's face, which is classic compression. It's classic math, mm-hmm. but it doesn't take into account human behavior, which is if I figure out the four points, my cost of attack is so low. Why wouldn't I use it to get invisibility? So now if they're using 900 points or 9,000 points, they've put a little more skin in the game, so to speak, uh, pun not intended. And so David Hume would say, you're, you're getting closer to the 90%. Don't put yourself out of business, but don't, don't just use you know, color by number. You could tell me right. if it's a tree or a dog. Don't just use three points to identify a human versus a tree. So that's, that's where auditability and transparency really comes in. If you can't show the work at a level that shows you really took the time to figure out certainty at a reasonable level, due diligence to be actual, intelli- actually intelligent or knowledgeable, you're probably on the wrong side of history. Yes. Yeah. Very good point. Well, we're at the end of our show now. And I guess um, here it looks like we have maybe one minute left. If you could maybe let our listeners know what is, you know, just the primary point you want our listeners to take away from listening to our chat today about artificial intelligence. Well, I'd love for people to read my blog, of course, because I try to address a lot of these. So for follow on, Definitely try to write as much as possible there about some of these topics. But the one point I really want to emphasize is many of the things we're dealing with today have been seen before. There's a rich history and rich disciplines and cross-disciplines that people should really look into to try to address problems we face today. Not saying it's not new in some novel way or there are things we don't have to solve. We definitely have problems that we need to figure out in ways never seen before. But a lot of what we're dealing really needs to listen to the past to understand where we're going to be in the future. Great. That is a great way to uh, uh, to leave our listeners. Thank you so much, Davi, for being on my show today. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So today I've been speaking with Davi Ottenheimer about artificial intelligence. Yes, please, to my listeners, go out and check out his blog and also some of his talks that he's given. There's videos out there. Also, please send me feedback about this show. Would you like to hear more about artificial intelligence? Just let me know. Do you have a topic to suggest I cover or a guest to suggest? Uh, Just send me your ideas to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, if you cannot make our scheduled live time on the first Saturday of each month, you'll be able to listen to the recordings. And you can find recordings of all of my past shows on iTunes, Mobile Play, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, and, of course, on VoiceAmerica.com. 
Business Channel website. Also, feel free to get in touch with me if you have anything you want to talk about uh, with regard to information security, privacy, or compliance. And certainly you can visit my YouTube channel, The Privacy Professor. So until next time, I urge all of you to notice and stay aware of information security and privacy issues as you go about your daily activities and, and while you're doing your job and daily work or when you encounter anything else that involves your personal information that uh, could impact your privacy. Until our next show, ask those that you do business with and who you work for, are they doing all they can to secure the information you've entrusted to them? Be privacy aware in the month ahead. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in this week. Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live every Saturday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week, stay safe.